And the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So the last few, couple of weeks, the last week or two, have been pretty tough for many in our diocese and for many across the North Island. I was talking to somebody I taught a long time ago in Blenheim uh, on Facebook who lives 15 minutes from Piha. It worked with one of the volunteer firefighters who was killed and new people just down the road who houses, whose houses were still underwater. At one level he's fine, but at another level he's not. And many of us know people who have lost their homes, have lost businesses, maybe lost family members. And yet for us here, life goes on. Last week I was on a couple of Zoom calls with clergy living both in the Hawke's Bay and Gisborne and Tairawhiti. And while they're okay, they did lose power and they had no way of communicating with anyone because all the communication was down and so they felt cut off and they couldn't tell people they were okay. And they too knew people who had lost everything. And then one of them said, what wisdom have you asked for John? And I went, I have no wisdom at all because this has not really affected me. Last Saturday while you were dealing with all of that, I went out for a birthday lunch. And then after that I went and watched terrible cricket or good cricket, depending on whether you're English or New Zealand, uh, for the rest of the afternoon and evening. It's a little surreal, really. And it's hard to know how to react. And so it was good to gather on Ash Wednesday and to begin the season of Lent again, hearing the words, from dust you come and from dust you shall return, turn from sin and live the gospel. And like every first Sunday in Lent, this Sunday we heard the story of Jesus in the wilderness, Matthew's version of the story this time. In his world of loss and grief, Jesus spends 40 days praying around what it means to be the beloved son. The words he has just heard at his baptism, You are my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. What is his place in the empire of heaven? How might he live as the beloved son? Living in the reign of heaven. And then... The Satan, the tester, comes to distract him, to offer alternative ways of seeing himself as the beloved son, offering an alternative reign of heaven and other ways of living into that. And he rejects them all. Normally, Lent is a time for us to reflect on those same questions. Who are we as beloved children of God? What distracts us? or leads us to forget that we are beloved children? What might help us centre our lives in that? And how might we live that out? But this year, and this year's ongoing weather events mean that for many of us, we are living in a real wilderness. A wilderness of loss and grief, both for ourselves and others. 
So what does the story offer us in the face of this? And what practices might sustain us during these times? Just take a moment to reflect on that. One of those practices might be persistence or faithfulness, as we heard in uh, one of our readings today. Being persistent in hope, being persistent in offering hope. Last week I finished our few weeks uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, which begins with the Beatitudes, by asking who inspires us to be persistent in living the Beatitudes. Who inspires us to persistently resist and live in God's reign? And I thought this length that I might offer some people who inspire me to some degree. And so today I want to talk about Dorothy Day. Now I first met Dorothy, not in person, because she was long dead by the time I encountered her, uh, in 2007 when I went to stay with a fellow Franciscan in New York. And she had moved there 50 or 60 years earlier uh, to the East Village when she and another young friend had been doing a car trip around America. They were American. And uh, they went to the house of hospitality and knocked on the door and Dorothy answered the door and her friend said, introduced herself and then said, and this is my friend Terry Rogers. And then she said something like, and you really inspire her and she would like to come and live with you. Which took Terry back a bit. I mean, she did want to go and live at the house of hospitality. She just wasn't going to say it out loud. But they finished their car trip and then Terry packed up her stuff and moved to New York and moved into the House of Hospitality where she lived and ministered. And when I uh, stayed with her, she lived at a little apartment just down the road from the House of Hospitality and was still a member of the Catholic Worker Movement. And I went with her for a meeting about forgiveness and the need for forgiveness and how forgiveness is something you need to do because if you don't forgive, then you allow the other person control of your life. But people were saying, how can I forgive police who continue to brutalise poor people, homeless people, black people? Forgiveness isn't that easy. Well, some of you might be wondering, who the heck is Dorothy Day? One of the books I read is written by D.L. Mayfield, and she begins her book, Unruly Saint, Dorothy Day's Radical Vision and Its Challenge for Our Times, by telling the story of Pope Francis's historic address to the members of Congress in 2015. And in his address, he highlighted four exemplars of U.S. history, people of great faith who moved America's moral and social imagination forward in distinct ways. And you can probably guess some of them. Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr., Thomas Merton, 
all familiar names in the story of America. And then he said, Dorothy Day. And Kate Hennessy, Dorothy Day's granddaughter, laughs as she tells the story because she said most people had no idea who she was. And they, all the press were suddenly on their smartphones and computers typing in, who the heck is Dorothy Day? It was a little ironic that Pope Francis was naming her as a notable person in the very halls where she had been often seen with great suspicion as a seditious person of interest. To many people, both Catholic and non-Catholic, Dorothy Day is one of the most important figures in the American 20th century. A devout Catholic, a social activist, a pacifist, an anarchist. So anarchists, well that's a big term, and it covers a lot of things. Had to read what it meant. And but her version of anarchism was that it's up to the individual to fix things. And so she was profoundly against state involvement. Even though she'd been a suffragette, she never voted. And she thought the woman should have the vote, she just wasn't going to vote. Uh, and uh, when the uh, Roosevelt brought in pensions, she was against it. Because she thought that the state bringing in pensions alleviated the responsibility of employers to pay their workers enough so that they could save for their retirement and have enough to live on after they stopped working. And she thought the state was taking over their responsibility. A responsibility they weren't living up to. So she continued to argue that for all her life. And she lived her anarchist principles to the end. She is best known for working with Peter Morin to found the Catholic Worker newspaper in 1933. It still goes today. You can subscribe. Establishing the Catholic Worker Houses of Hospitality in New York. And then others started around the United States and around the world. And on Facebook yesterday, a guy I know is a bit of an itinerant figure. Uh, he's currently staying at the Catholic Worker Farm in Fiji. I went, oh, there's a Catholic Worker Farm in Fiji. There you go, didn't know that. And through their house hospitality, this network of houses and farms and people around the world. So some of you remember the Camerons, they were involved with the Catholic Worker Movement. They too are anarchists. Their houses of hospitality combined direct aid for poor and the homeless and engaged with non-violent direct action on their behalf to change the world so that there did not need to be poor and homeless. She was called to a radical life of voluntary poverty, community living and activism. So I thought about her life, I realised that in her first 50 years, she lived through the San Francisco earthquake, her family lived at uh, Oakland at the time, uh, and there she experienced community coming together in tragedy. She lived through World War I, where her pacifist ideals were cemented, and during that the Russian Revolution, which 
as a communist, or not quite a communist, but as a socialist. Uh, they were part of those who went out and celebrated. She worked as a suffragette, uh, went on the picket lines to the White House where she was arrested and joined the hunger strike for 10 days to improve the conditions in which those suffragettes were kept in. They were kept in appalling conditions to break them. She lived through the flu epidemic where she worked as a nurse for a year, laying aside her calling to be a writer. She lived through the 1920s with all its opulence and poverty and then the Great Depression which shaped her. And then World War II which got her into oh so much trouble when she publicly stood for pacifism and encouraged men to not sign up for the war and people not to buy the bonds. She got summoned to the bishop's office over that one. When she was young, she read avidly, not just children's books, but a wide range of books. She loved the Russian writers, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, and others who wrote about the poor and Russia. She read other anarchists and pacifists and socialists. She read Darwin and Huxley, and she read Dickens, and she continued to read these for all her life. They were her companions. In 1916, when she was 17, she finished college and she moved to New York, where her family had moved to, and she looked for work as a journalist, which was tough because her father was very conservative, also a journalist, a sports journalist, and he didn't think that women should go to college, so he wasn't happy with her going to college, and he didn't think they should work, let alone be a journalist, so he told all his editor friends, don't employ her. So it took her a while to get a job. But while she walked, while she looked for a job, she also walked the streets of Manhattan, particularly in the poor parts of Manhattan, in East Village, in an Alphabet City, and places like that. And she described, and she'd done the same in Chicago, where she'd gone to college and lived for a long time with her family, and she described the difference in, in the long loneliness, her autobiography, this difference in smells between the tenements in Chicago and the tenements in New York. She said, the ones in New York smelt of death. She went to live there with one of the families. When she, looked, when she eventually did get a job, she became a muckraking journalist. Now, this is a particular term that describes journalists in America and other places from the 1890s through to the 1920s. And today we would call them investigative journalists. So they did in-depth articles that were, were intended to raise public awareness and anger at the cause and effect of urban poverty, unsafe and degrading working conditions, prostitution, racism, and child labour. She would write about what it was like to be poor. What was it like to live in a tenement? What was it like to be unemployed? And why were people living in these kinds of conditions? Her life during those years revolved around writing and late-night conversations with her fellow journalists, other writers, socialists, and communists. She got involved in all sorts of other things and other parts. Uh, but for much of that time, she bumped in and out of Christianity, but her circles were mostly anarchist, socialist, 
She continued to have good, good friends who were leaders in the communist movement in the United States. And this was a time where people could freely travel between Russia and America. In 19, uh, towards the end of that, she wrote a novel which was kind of autobiographical and um, she didn't really like it later on. Uh, she didn't think it was a good piece of work. But it was published and the film rights were sold. And with the, what she got from the film rights, she was able to buy a small cottage on the coast of Staten Island to be part of that community. And she had a good friend, another anarchist, and they uh, lived together, um, cohabited, was about as far as he was ever willing to describe it. But they, um, they did have a child together in 1926, Tamar. And that reawakened in her a faith that she'd been kind of bouncing around and ignoring for a long time. And she, this time, she was a confirmed Episcopalian Anglican, had been a Methodist, but this time she was drawn to the Catholic Church. That eventually led to the end of her, um, her relationship because uh, he was an anarchist and wanted nothing to do with the Catholic Church or with marriage. And she couldn't be baptised if she was living in sin, so they went their separate ways. To make ends meet, she moved back to New York with Tamar and began writing for a Catholic newspaper. In 1932, she was invited to go to Washington, D.C. for the upcoming Hunger March. And she wondered, while she was reporting on that, why her church was not present. Why her church had nothing to say at all to all these people who were starving many of whom were Catholic. In her autobiography she wrote, I could write, I could protest, to arouse the conscience, but where was the Catholic leadership in the gathering of bands of men and women together for the actual works of mercy that the comrades, the communists, had always made part of their technique in reaching the workers? Later that year, she met Peter Moran, and his uh, photo, I think, came up earlier. She, him and um, Dorothy Day, sitting together, standing together. He was an immigrant, a French immigrant, who'd had some formal training and had been part of a, of a religious order. And he had a vision of social justice and its connection to the poor, which was partly inspired by St. Francis of Assisi and partly inspired by the writings of the Church Fathers and the papal documents on social matters that had been issued by Pope Leo XIII and his successors. He thought that if people could gather together and learn some of these ideas, talk about them, then they would be motivated, the poor, to change the world themselves. Well, she and Peter got on very well. He became her closest friend. And she provide, he provided Day with the grounding in Catholic theology that she needed that would then spur her to social action. And then in 1933, they founded the Catholic Worker Newspaper, which was founded in direct opposition to the Communists. Their first paper was distributed at the May Day celebrations in Union Square in 1933. It was sold for a penny. And they had all sorts of people going out there, flogging it off. And the ones that were left over, they took to parishes to get them to sell them 
as well. The Catholic Worker was a vehicle for Peter Moran to offer his little essays, which kind of summarise this Catholic social teaching in a much more readable way. And it allowed Day to return to her muck-raking journalism, what, where her real passion was. It was aimed at those who were suffering the most in the depths of the Great Depression, those who think there is no hope for the future, and announced to them that the Catholic Church has a social program. There are men of God who are working not only for their spiritual, but their material welfare. Around the same time, she started feeding the hungry who lived near her little apartment in East Village, offering bread and soup. Her place became slowly a house of hospitality where people would queue up for the soup and the bread that was always on offer, for the coffee that was always on the stove. Peter Moran moved in, other people moved into her little apartment, Soon she was looking for a bigger apartment because it was also the headquarters for the Catholic Worker newspaper. In fact, it was all written there. She wrote most of it. It was published every month. Gradually, that house of hospitality grew and they needed to find bigger apartments so they could continue offering this hospitality. And all through this time, Peter would sit out the back with people who wanted to have conversations with them to talk about Catholic social teaching. The poor people who didn't go out there very often, much to his disappointment, was other thinkers who were drawn to his thinking and they would go and discuss the nature of the world and the nature of the problem. They saw a need. They responded to that need. And then they wrote about that need in the Catholic Worker newspaper, the causes of the need, and what they were doing about it, their experience of that. They did what needed to be done, and they invited other people to do the same thing. Their dream was that every Catholic parish across the United States would open houses of hospitality so that they too could engage with the poor and the homeless. And through her writing, and through her force of personality and going to visit places around the United States, other houses of hospitality opened and the Catholic worker movement began and continues today. But it was always a movement and at the heart was always an anarchist movement, which meant each house was independent and could make its own decisions. She had no authority over any house apart from her own, which caused her a lot of grief on many occasions when they did things that she didn't agree with. But as an anarchist, she could not change that. Mayfield notes that when she died over 40 years ago in 1980, the news made the front page of the New York Times. Her obituary described it was the front page of the New York Times. There was nothing else. Her obituary described her legacy of engaging Catholics and people of faith in the work of social justice through the newspaper she founded, her houses of hospitality, and her luminous personality. It noted her communist background, although she would say she was never a communist, but she was a socialist. 
her love of the poor, and her desire to see people of faith at the forefront of social justice issues. From the obituary, it was clear that she was the kind of paradox that intrigues the world. She was famously leftist in her ideals, but she also loved the, uh, the traditions and liturgy of Roman Catholicism. Those traditions, that liturgy was at the heart of her life. It sustained her. She went to Mass every day. She invited others to go with her. She prayed the rosary. It was who she was, and it allowed her to do what she did. When she publicly clashed with church authority figures throughout her life, and she did clash, people near her remained mystified that she wasn't denounced or excommunicated. Perhaps, mused the writer of her New York Times obituary, it was because the cardinals themselves suspected they might be dealing with a saint. A stubborn, smiling, unruly saint who never stopped seeing the face of Christ in the faces of the poor around her and invited everyone else to do the same. Another writer suggests that Day's life challenges readers to imagine what it would be like to live as if the Gospels were true. As I think of the Beatitudes, and as I think about living them persistently, I can't think of a better example than Dorothy Day. They were at the heart of who she was. She lived them and invited other people to do the same. A final note. Dorothy Day loved to quote John Ruskin, who urged everyone to the duty of delight. It was an admonition, really, to be watchful for the hilarious and the heartwarming and the silly and the sublime, no matter how tough life got. And life got tough for Dorothy Day, juggling all that she juggled, with all the disappointments for her, the duty to delight was always paramount. Despite all she went through, her own rigorous discipline at times, she came under the, um, uh, um, the direction of a, of a priest who thought that if you enjoyed something, then you should give it up for Christ. Uh, so life became pretty cheerless during those times. And she did give up smoking. She was a, she was a um, constant smoker. She gave that up. But when he suggested that she give up coffee, she told him that was a step too far. And that was not him. <laughs> Day held this duty to delight at the heart of her faith. Which is why she is remembered. A lot of these photographs aren't of her smiling, but people in Newark remember her as someone who smiled. It allowed her to do all that she did. So as we face this Lent, with all the last month or so has done to us, I wonder what Dorothy Day's story, the example of her life, offers us. Just a comment about this quote. There is another version of this quote. This is the nice one. The other one is, if you have two coats, you have stolen one from the poor. So... 
Let's spend a moment thinking about Dorothy Day and what she offers us as we journey into this Lent. Thank you.